If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to the book of Galatians. Uh, As we start a new study through that book, you can find the book of Galatians um, in the New Testament after the Corinthian correspondence. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians, and you can follow along there. Before we read that, let me read you a quote from Martin Luther. Therefore, God accepts only the forsaken, cures only the sick, gives sight only to the blind, restores life only to the dead, sanctifies only the sinners, gives wisdom only to unwise fools. In short, He has mercy on those who are wretched and gives grace only to those who are not in grace. Therefore, no proud saint, no wise or just person can become God's material and God's purpose cannot be fulfilled in him. He remains his own work and makes a fictitious, pretended, false, and painted saint of himself. That is, he's a hypocrite. We come very shortly next month to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Now, it's a little bit misleading. It's not as though the 500th or the Reformation was filled and complete or even really started when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door at Wittenberg, although that is what we will be celebrating on October 31st. That is not actually the date of the Reformation, but that signals a very important step in the Reformation. Luther realized that there was something wrong with how the Catholic Church was handling the ideas of indulgences. The Pope at the time wanted to build a great new basilica, the one that stands now in the center of the Vatican, St. Peter's Basilica, and he wanted to build this, and it was a magnificent structure. The problem was that the Pope didn't have the money to build it, and so he sent out his men into the north, specifically to Germany. Germany was an incredibly poor country at the time. But the Pope had a way of sort of pulling money out of them. You see, if if they were to give money to the Pope that he might build this basilica, every coin that went into the coffer of these people, the Pope would give an indulgence to so that a person who had died might be spared the agony of purgatory. They might be able to be removed from purgatory. The 95 Theses are pointed directly at that. And in them, Luther has biting words to say for a pope who would do such a thing. While still trying to be reverent to the authority that the pope had, he questions whether or not the pope would do this of his own free grace instead of charging poor peasants simply to build a palace for himself. This, although the start of the Reformation, is not the full achievement of the Reformation. The Reformation really took hold when Luther read for the first time correctly Romans 1, 16 through 17. Those words are these. In Romans 1, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. These were not very new words for Luther, he understood those well. It is the next words that actually changed him in Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther would go on to write, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. And if you ever read a biography of Luther, you will find out very quickly how disturbed that was. He would pester his confessors for hours to the point where they said, Luther, just summarize. Like three or four hours, he would confess sins continually before them. He couldn't get rid of his conscience. Luther goes on, I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if, indeed, it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also be the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat inopportunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. The problem was, of course, this word righteousness, that his righteousness was revealed from heaven. For Paul, that only meant God's judgment was revealed. His righteousness was his holiness, his inability to stand sin. And so when Paul wrote those words, when Luther read them, he would read them only in terms of the fact that God would punish people for their sin. Luther would go on, though, to say this. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again. and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scriptures showed itself to me. Thereupon, I ran through the scriptures from memory. I also found the other terms as an analogy, as the work of God, that is, what God does in us, the power of God, which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God, with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. The change for Luther was that no longer was God's righteousness what he pours out upon sinners, and therefore Luther felt the need to make himself not a sinner. Rather, what Luther discovered was that grace alone saves, that Christ is the provision of the righteousness we need. He, of course, found this in the book of Romans, but it is nowhere written more strongly by the apostle than in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is the 
book that upholds that Christ and nothing else is needed to gain salvation. Romans hits on this, but it hits on a number of different issues as well. Galatians is laser-focused on this. You need nothing besides Christ to be saved. The book of Galatians is not easy to summarize. The basic idea of the book is that everything to do with our salvation is an act of God. As Luther said, it is what God has done. It is the power of God for us. It is the salvation of God for us. It is done by God. Salvation has been thought out by God. It has been planned by God. It has been prepared by God. It has been achieved by God. It is affected by God. God makes it true to us, and therefore, there is nothing that we can do to add to it. As a matter of fact, any attempt to add to anything that Christ has done nullifies the very work of Christ as giving it as a gift. That is the theme of the book of Galatians. And before we get into it, we do need to kind of set the historical context of the book. Although it doesn't greatly affect the actual interpretation of the book, there are two basic areas that Galatians could have been written to. One was south and one was north. The basic distinction is this. South Galatia was a region named Galatia. North Galatia was a place where actual people who were Galatians ethnically would have lived, okay? And so the question becomes, did he write to people who were Galatians, or did he write to people who were in the area that was generally known as Galatia? I favor the latter for various and sundry reasons, but that means that this book was written very early, likely. And it means that it probably was written, or these churches were probably founded on Paul's first missionary journey, which we can read of in Acts 13 and 14. On that short journey, Paul founded these churches and immediately heard of the difficulty that was coming to them. It means that what happens in Acts 15 is actually after the book of Galatians, which is the council in Jerusalem, which hits on the very themes of Galatians. We do need to be careful as we read through this book in trying to figure out who the opponents of Paul actually were, who he calls agitators, these people who are perverting the gospel. It is very easy to run to the book with all kinds of assumptions about the kinds of people they were and the kind of theology that they had. We really don't know much about them. We have to do something called mirror reading, and that is we have to get who they are from what Paul has written. We hear one side of the conversation as it is, but we need to be very careful about what that one side actually says. We know this. We know that these people showed up, and they were claiming that in order for the Galatians to truly be the people of God, in order for salvation to truly be sure for them, they had to circumcise themselves. This is the main issue in the book of Galatians, and it is what Paul takes up. Lastly, let's be very clear, there are many difficult passages in Galatians. And while we have been hovering through Deuteronomy and Judges at about 30,000 feet, we were macroscopic, as it were. We are going to be very microscopic as we go through the book of Galatians. We are going to slow down. As you can see, we've got five verses today. I haven't preached on just five verses in about nine months. Usually it's five chapters. So we are slowing way down, and hopefully that is a good thing. Today we are just looking at the introduction, and this introduction to the book of Galatians happens in the first five verses of the book. Let us read them now. The letter of Paul to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, 
but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. This introduction is fairly typical. First century introductions always included three marks, who the letter was from, who the letter was to, and typically a greetings, which is usually just the word in Greek, greetings. Paul's introductions do more than that, though. He fills in the introduction considerably. Here he talks about who he is. He talks about who Jesus Christ is, and more than that, he changes it not just greetings, but to grace. This is consistent throughout all of Paul's letters. This word that is normally just greetings in Greek is turned into grace by Paul. It is a reminder that no matter how angry Paul might have been, and a lot of people will notice as you read through the book of Galatians that there is a thanksgiving that Paul almost includes in every single letter. He almost always turns to the people he's writing to and says, I'm thankful for you, and you'll notice that there is absolutely no I'm thankful for you in the book of Galatians. No matter how angry he is, he is reminded that they have grace upon them and that he wishes grace upon them. There is an idea here that he wants them to be peace, have peace, and be part of the grace of Jesus Christ. So while angry, Paul still wants what is best for them. And although this is simply an introduction, this is, frankly, a summary of the entirety of the book. We see here that God is always uh, has already accomplished all that the gospel needs to offer us and does offer us. It is God's finished and completed work of the gospel. We see that that is first here in that God has wholly accomplished the message of the gospel. God has wholly accomplished the message of the gospel. Paul begins by saying that he is an apostle and he says it's not from men nor through men. It wasn't a commission that sat down and, and asked Paul. They said, Paul, we see that you've got tremendous gifts. We've heard you preach and you've got tremendous knowledge of Scripture. You are a great leader and we would like to have you lead our congregation or we would like to have you lead other congregations. Or we, we think that you might be a wonderful witness to the people who are far away. Please go to them. We, were, we want to send you out on a missionary journey to go to the farthest ends of the earth. It wasn't people who noticed something in Paul. It wasn't people who sat down and saw something in him and decided that he could be great for the Lord. He says it wasn't by any of that. Instead, it was by the Lord Jesus Christ, which simply in passing says something very important about the Lord. Notice he says it wasn't from men nor through man, and then he turns around and says it was through Jesus Christ, which means he's not just a man to Paul. The statement makes no sense if Paul simply conceived of him as flesh and blood. Paul conceives of him as something greater, and the fact that it is also through God the Father indicates something of the unity of Jesus Christ and God the Father. They have sent him. This is clearly a reminder of Acts 9 where Paul is converted on the Damascus Road. Paul, the great terror of the church, was going to Damascus to throw Christians in prison when this happens. In Acts chapter 9, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christians, men or women, 
he might bind them and bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul would leave from that encounter blind, and he would go to a nearby city where a servant of Jesus named Ananias would be told you are to go to Paul and you are to heal him. And Ananias holds up a very trembling hand to the Lord and he says, I don't know if you know, Paul's kind of a jerk and he's done a whole bunch of really bad things and I would prefer not to have to go and do this. And Jesus says to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was not sent out by men, but before men even knew he was a Christian, he was commissioned by God to go out for this task. Paul was, here he says, an apostle. That simply means he was one who was sent. In the first century, it's not even a very much used word. But in Christianity, it becomes a very, very particular word. It's a word that he uses all the time in reference to himself. He is an apostle of the Lord. An apostle, although misused today, is no longer found today. People who call themselves apostles don't know what they're talking about. They don't know how to read scripture very well. There are no more apostles. You'll find that later on when Paul is going to be sending out people and equipping churches, he does not tell Timothy, make sure you find apostles to lead the church. He says, you are to appoint elders in every place. There are no more apostles. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about what it means to be an apostle. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though many have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He says, he appeared to me. Now, Jesus just appearing to people does not mean that those people are apostles, but it does mean that Paul was the last of the apostles and that apostles all saw the resurrected Jesus. Paul is an apostle. He is commissioned by God to take the message out. Now, we can read that. And we can say what Paul is doing here is very clever. He's saying, listen, I'm an apostle, Galatians, and so you have to listen to me. I'm going to tell you what's what, and you're going to say, yes, sir. You're going to fall in line, and you're going to do what I'm asking you to do. Only that doesn't appear to be what Paul's purpose is at all. Paul's authority does not lie in himself. Rather, Paul's authority lies in the message that he proclaims. We know this because we can read further down. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, Paul says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So he says, even if I showed up to you again and I preached to you a gospel, me, Paul, the apostle, the authoritative apostle, if I came to you and I gave you a gospel that was different 
significantly and contradicted the one that I gave to you before, let me be accursed. Paul, although that is clearly a rhetorical flourish by Paul, still thought that the authority lied not in him, but in the gospel that he was commissioned to give. He is authoritative only so far as he preaches an authoritative gospel. He is an apostle only so far as the message by which he takes is actually the message of God. We can see this even later. In chapter 2, verse 11, when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Peter. This is Peter, the first of all of the apostles, the one who saw the transfigured Christ, the one who was established by Christ as the one who held the keys of the kingdom. This Peter himself stood condemned because he was not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Being an apostle is not enough. Knowing the gospel is is. It isn't so much that Paul or Peter or any of the apostles themselves had authority. It was that they had authority because they knew the gospel. And this is important because as we've already talked, the Reformation was not just about the issue of justification and that we are justified in Christ alone and not by any works that we have done, but more than that and even more fundamentally than that, it was how we know that. The Catholic Church has for a long time claimed that Peter, being the first pope in Rome, left a succession of popes in Rome, and therefore they claim apostolic succession, although they don't consider themselves apostles. But listen to how Paul speaks here. Paul speaks as though even his authority, as an affirmed apostle in God, even his authority is subservient to the gospel. The church has no right to ever change the gospel. It has no power over the gospel. It has no right to manipulate it or to move it or to change it or to fit it into certain keyholes that they want to be true. The church doesn't have a right or any authority over the gospel at all. The gospel has authority over us. That's good news because we don't belong to Rome. But there are many, many ways that you make yourself a mini-pope in how you read. Be careful. Just because you think we're Baptists and we're independent and we don't have a council sitting over us, we don't have people sitting over us telling us what is good and true and right and we can come to the word on our own, don't think that that doesn't mean that you do not sit sometimes as an authority over Scripture yourself. There are many times when I read, when you read scripture, not coming away convicted by what scripture is telling you, but simply assured that you are right. Friends, if that is your experience reading scripture, you are only a pope without a kingdom. You're a pope, only lamer. And that's hard. You are not an authority over scripture. You are not to read scripture and be convinced of your rightness. You are to read scripture and be convicted of your lack of righteousness before God. The message of the gospel is wholly accomplished by God. Secondly, the merit of the gospel is wholly, wholly accomplished by God. Paul goes on to say, in the end of that first verse, that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's an interesting reference, one of the only references to the resurrection in the book of Galatians. The question becomes, why in the world should you, friend, 
accept the gospel? When I speak to you, what is it that, that makes you want to believe it? What should the Galatians want to believe about the gospel? Why should anyone believe in this Jesus? Paul is going to emphasize so much putting faith and trust in the work of Christ. For Paul, the work of Christ is primarily known by the cross. It is through the cross that Jesus becomes our justification. It's through the cross that Christ gives us forgiveness. It is through the cross that Christ becomes the new and better Adam. It is through the cross that we are unified with him. Listen to these words of Paul himself from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Only him crucified. Everything Paul said that you needed to hear from me, that you needed to believe, was found at the cross. Even in this book, the resurrection takes sort of a back seat, and the thing that Paul continually puts before us is the cross. Chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see there both the importance of the cross and his unification with Christ in the cross. In 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that is, who is crucified. Time and time again, Paul comes back to the crucifixion as the main idea behind how we are forgiven for our sins, how we are atoned for, how new life comes to us, how Christ is now reigning king over all things that happens on the cross. The question is, why should you buy that? There are a lot of people who were crucified. There are a lot of people who stood up as messiahs and claimed to be the one who would bring grace and peace in God to Israel. Why is Jesus different? And the answer that comes back is one thing, He was raised from the dead by God. When Paul says here, he was raised from the dead, he is saying God, in resurrecting Jesus Christ, has affirmed everything that Christ could have accomplished on that cross. We know that Christ was fully obedient to God because God raised him from the dead. We know that God accepted his sacrifice because God raised him from the dead. We know that he is innocent before God because God raised him from the dead. We know that he is going to live forever because God raised him from the dead. All of the truth of the gospel is not found only in the resurrection. The truth of the gospel, the meat of the gospel is found in the cross. The stamp of approval of the gospel is found in the raising of Christ from the dead. Again, this is incredibly important for us. Paul reaffirms this, likely in a sermon recorded in Acts that could have been preached here at Galatia from his first missionary journey. We read this in Acts 13, verses 28. Says in the sermon, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, the fathers in Israel asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news. 
that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus also, as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed of by the law of Moses. How is it that they know forgiveness is there? How are they supposed to know that there is freedom in Christ that the law of Moses couldn't possibly give them? They know it because Christ was raised from the dead. It's not wrong. The world often judges, though, Christianity by Christians. They will look at us and they will say, you know, I would buy into Christianity, but Christians are a right bunch of hypocrites. They say that they shouldn't have people do X, Y, and Z, but we find that they're greedy, they're hateful. They're a number of different things. And on a number of different counts, they are not wrong. Christians are prone to those things. But friend, let us hear two things very, very well. One, of course we are. Because we're sinners. And we have already proclaimed that we are not saved by making ourselves righteous before God, but we are saved in our own sin by the righteousness of God. We do not claim to be perfect. And so to judge the gospel by the imperfection of the people of God is to misunderstand flatly what the gospel is proclaiming. And secondly, the merit of the gospel never rests among his people. It never rests among his people. Why have you believed in the gospel? Do you believe in the gospel because it, it makes you feel good? Because you were raised in the tradition? Because it, it clearly helps others and so there must be something to it? Because you think that it's reasonable, perhaps. Friend, all of those are good reasons. But none of them are sure. You rely on your feelings. A good bout of indigestion can rip the gospel away, right away from you. You believe in it because it helps others. Well, I'm telling you, there are plenty of people who are indeed delivered from all kinds of evil through the work of the gospel, but there are also plenty of people who are plunged into difficulties unknown because they have accepted the gospel. The firm foundation and the merit of the gospel as it goes out is solely in the fact that God has put a stamp of authority on the truthfulness of the gospel by raising Christ from the dead. Lastly, God has wholly accomplished the meaning of the gospel. He has wholly accomplished the message of the gospel, the merit of the gospel, and finally, the meaning of the gospel. If I were to ask you or say to you, Christ died for your sins, and say, what does that mean to you? I would guess that almost all of you, if not every single one in here, would say, well, what that means that Christ died for my sins is that I am forgiven for my sin. My sins are no longer over me. And I would tell you, amen, that is good and true. 
And, and as a matter of fact, that idea has its roots and its tentacles all throughout Scripture. We read of the Day of Atonement, even in Leviticus, when Aaron has made an end of the atoning of the holy place and the tent of meeting for the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear the iniquities on itself to a remote areas, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. That is, the goat has placed upon it all of the sin of Israel, and the sins are literally walked away. This is the day of atonement. This is how people get right with God. And so your answer, if you said, Christ died for your sins, what does that gain for you? And you said, my forgiveness, that is, amen and true. All the more reason, then, with what Paul says in verse 4, ought to strike us as incredibly odd and therefore incredibly important. What does he say? He says that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Why? To deliver us from the present evil age. Not simply to forgive your sins. But Paul backs up even a further step and he says it's not just to forgive your sins, but it's to deliver you from the present evil age age. Several hundred years ago, and you'll have to stick with me for a second on this. This does go somewhere. Several hundred years ago, a man named Rene Descartes sat down and he was going to do some meditating. And he sat down and he did some meditating. He was going to doubt everything he could. And he came to the conclusion that everything around him could be totally and completely fake. He said, I, I could frankly just be hallucinating everything. And he came up with the idea that I could be hallucinating all of you. I could be hallucinating my hands. I could be hallucinating everything I feel. If you've talked to people who have hallucinated before, they are really sure that what's going on is real and true. Descartes knows this and he says, listen, everything around us could be fake. Now he ends up saying something along the lines of, I think, therefore I am, which is a famous dictum that you probably have heard before, meaning the only thing he can't doubt is that he exists. Now, while that wrecked epistemology for the next 400 years, he was on to something, and he then interestingly turns around and says, okay, well, if all of this is a hallucination, how do I know it's not a devil or a demon that's making me hallucinate everything? He doesn't actually even track with that. He just leaves it there. But this is a known problem in philosophy. Think of it. How do you know that the person sitting next to you is real? How do you know that I am real? Everyone looked at their neighbor. That was funny. Uh, they're, they're still there. How do you know that they're real? Because touching, smelling, feeling them next to you, hearing them next to you, all of that could be a hallucination. How do you know you're hearing me now? That could be a hallucination too. Many of you probably hope that I am. This has been embodied in philosophy for a very long time. It's the mind-body problem. It was actually embodied best in a movie that was released almost 20 years ago now called The Matrix. Because now with the advent of technology, we have a very good way to place this idea. And that is, what if all of this is simply a computer program? What if all of this is just how you have been built, that you are a mind in a lab somewhere in some other place that isn't even in this reality with just neurons being fed information that makes you think that everything you see around you is real? 
There are two basic questions to come from this. One, how would you ever figure out if that were true? How are you supposed to know whether reality is what it looks like around you? And then even if you were to figure that out, how could you escape? If all of this is fake, how are you ever to escape back to that which is real? The Matrix solved this by having people come from without and coming back in to the Matrix. And then they told people and they extracted them from the Matrix. Well, that makes really good sense. What Paul is saying here is much the same problem that the people in the Matrix faced. You, friend, exist in a world that is polluted by sin. And it is so polluted by sin that you see it all around you. It is part and parcel of everything that is there for you. There is no way for you to escape from it. Your sin is directly tied to the present evil age. When you sin, you place yourself under the power of the present evil age, which only allows you to sin which then places you back under the power of the present evil age. It is a vicious circle. No matter how hard you work, no matter how much effort you put in, there is nothing you can do to escape it. Like the matrix, there's no way to remove yourself from the fake reality you see around you. So what you need is you need somebody to come in from outside to free you from it. That person is Christ. Christ frees you from your sins so that you are no longer under the power of the present evil age, which oppresses you and holds you in your sin. And while you are there, that age of the flesh, that age of fallenness, you can never make yourself right with God. There is nothing in you that is capable of freeing you from that. There is nothing in you that is capable of delivering yourself from that. Every work that you do only sinks you further and further into the quagmire that is your own sin. It is only because of the righteousness of Christ given to you through the cross and by faith that you can ever hope to be saved. That is the gospel. That is the theme of the book of Galatians. The meaning of the gospel is that one who is not fallen, one who is not sinful, one who is not under the power of the world made himself like that for us, that he might gain righteousness and then give it freely to us. The meaning of the gospel is that you are saved by the free grace of Jesus Christ and that you, friend, can offer him nothing for it. This is wonderfully summarized, as so much is, by Augustus Toplady in the very famous hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin It's really good theology, but it's also beautifully written. The double cure, both saving you from wrath and then purifying you and making you whole again. He goes on, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill, can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save
Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. No work. No work that you could ever engage in. No amount of altruism, no amount of love, no amount of good deed, no amount of heart transformation that you can make in and of yourself, no amount of turning over leaves in your life will ever, ever make you acceptable to God. But God has done it himself. It is a work that he himself has accomplished. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This is the message of Galatians, and it is the message of the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let this be the theme of our lives as well. Let us pray. Father God, you are kind to us. We are so sinful before you. We are both victims and victimizers of the world. The world and our flesh has held us in prison for so long. And yet you have come and you have freed us from our prison. You have freed us from our own sin. You have freed us from the guilt that we have incurred. You have freed us by the blood of Jesus Christ who has taken our penalty for us. Let us boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ that you may receive glory and honor this day and every day. For you alone are worthy of honor and glory and praise. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.